welcome to Deep North. My name is Eric Pomeranke, and we are in the studio today with Iceland Review contributing writer Frank Walter Sands. And we're going to be taking a look at his piece, Western Promise, The Elusive Dream of New Iceland, about one Jakob August Jonsson, an East Icelander who risked everything to settle his family in the New World. While most people today are very much aware of Europe's exploration and colony building in what would optimistically be called the New World, you would be forgiven for not knowing that Icelanders founded a self-governing colony in the Americas as well. New Iceland was established on the shores of Lake Winnipeg, Manitoba, in the late 19th century, beginning with the settlement of Gimli, named after the most beautiful place on earth in Norse mythology. It is estimated that nearly 25% of the entire population of Iceland emigrated to North America over the four decades that followed. Today, Iceland has some of the highest standards of living in the world, and it is hard to imagine that a quarter of the nation emigrated for greener pastures. At the time, however, it was a poor and backward colony of the Danish crown. The traditional way of life had remained practically unchanged since the founding of the old Commonwealth in 930. Sheep farming was the occupation of 70% of the nation and the basis of its economy. Lamb was supplemented by fish, caught at great risk in open rowboats. In 1870, the population of Iceland was no more than 70,000, while the combined populations of Reykjavik and the next largest town of Akureyri were just over 3,000 people. Until the 20th century, Iceland had virtually nothing in the way of infrastructure. No harbors, railways, bridges, or paved roads, and not even a single hospital until the last decade of the 19th century. Diseases such as smallpox, measles, tuberculosis, scurvy, and leprosy regularly ravaged the country. Starvation was a familiar foe. Even after the First World War, the majority of Icelanders lived in turf houses with dirt floors and neither indoor plumbing nor central heating. Johan Erlinson, 1844-1928 At first, I worked for monthly wages and received $35. After that, I became a day-wage worker and earned about $2 to $2.25 per day. From the time I began working until November 1st, I was able to put together $115. It was good to work here in the summer. It was a blessed and profitable year both for the farmers and the working man, considered pretty good wages. Of course, it's a lot more than I ever earned while back home in Iceland, and I have all the necessities for day-to-day -day living, and I'm satisfied with that. From the Letters of the West Icelanders. Born on the 1st of February, 1867, Jakob August Jonsson, known more familiarly as Gusti, grew up in a typical turf and stone farmhouse, not far from the village of Vopnafjörður in northeast Iceland. His parents were simple farmers, living on rented land in a lifestyle not unlike that of their ancestors a thousand years before them. Even as an older man, Gusti remembered the infamous winter of 1881-1882, 
all too well. It is now regarded as one of the most extreme ice years of the past two centuries, contributing to the worst years of famine in living memory. The motivations to immigrate from Iceland to Canada were many and various. Laws on indentured servitude prevented average people from marrying unless they had land, and viable land was in short supply. Some longed for adventure, modernity, freedom, and a farm to call their own. Others sought relief from the grinding poverty and harshness of their existence. They too often failed to eke out a decent living in the inhospitable climate, where sea ice regularly held the nation hostage, and volcanic eruptions, such as the Askia eruption of 1875, could destroy hundreds of farms in one fell swoop. By 1882, heartbreaking stories of natural disasters, epidemics, famine, and hardships in Iceland were often appearing in the international press, but little assistance could be mustered. Johan Erlinson. 1844-1928 To be able to settle land here is nearly the only way to secure one's future, because those who have no land have no choice but to hire themselves on as laborers. Working for others leaves a man on unsteady feet. Losing his job for whatever reason or having health issues, either of which can happen all too easily. Gusti's family's 300 free-range sheep were caught in a snowstorm in the spring of 1882. At 15 years of age, Gusti and his brother Jon were tasked by their father to go out into the storm and bring back as many of the poor sheep as possible. They would have to get a minimum of 60 just to be able to service the family's debts. Scores of sheep died forcing their father to sell off all of his livestock and quit farming altogether. He moved the family to the local town of Vopnafjörður and found some work as a carpenter, while Gusti's mother helped out at a local farm. They had known hard times before, but without farming, their family would stay separated. Not long after, Gusti's father tragically died. However dire these last years of the 19th century were, they also brought the first real signs of hope and progress. In 1874, during the celebrations of the 1000th anniversary of settlement, the King of Denmark himself came to Iceland and formally granted the colony a constitution of their own. Sheep and horse farmers found profitable markets in Great Britain and hard currency was beginning to seep into Iceland for the first time. With the constitution, the country got its own domestic currency, the krona, and the Icelandic National Bank was founded shortly thereafter in 1885. International transport became affordable to ever larger numbers of common folk, and for the first time, emigration became a realistic option for subsistence farmers and their families. Johann Erlinson, 1844-1928. Loie, Eckert, and Etli are going to school, which is a short distance from here. Etli can already understand a lot of the language, and can even chat a bit in English. That's just the way the young are. I don't think I'll ever learn English, and that feels bad, 
because you can say that the language is the key to any man's progress here. It's rather unpleasant to go out to work without understanding what they're talking about. The fight for the nation's independence from Denmark was in full swing, and those who sought opportunity in North America and escape from a feudal existence in Iceland were publicly denounced as unpatriotic and traitors running from work. Benedict Grundahl, a respected intellectual, wrote in 1888, Dirt poor wretches and the lowest kind of rabble. These people are pathetic layabouts. Good riddance. Seeing only a dim future for the family in Iceland, Gusti's mother decided to emigrate to North America. She took his two sisters and younger brother with her, never to return. Gusti, now a capable young man, was determined to stay in Iceland. He married Arpjörg Jónsdóttir, a local farmer's daughter, and for the next few years they lived and worked on the farm with Gusti's father-in-law, Jón. Arpjörg soon became pregnant and gave birth to their first child. The harvests were improving, the livestock multiplying, and the future looked a bit less dim for a change. Gunnlaugur Otson, 1850 to 1931. Inkeltur works the same job as Arni Björnason at the sawmill here in town and gets one dollar a day, which is unusually low wages. There are far too many people in the last few years and a lot of impoverished Icelanders among them, so it's possible to get them to work for very low wages, and that depresses the wages for everybody in general. Also, there's no union here. There was no central plan to promote Iceland's settlement in Canada. Still, in the 1870s, the Canadian government was eager to encourage the settlement of vast territories in order to secure its claim on the land and extend its borders. The idea of an Icelandic colony was enabled by the Governor General of Canada, Frederick Temple Blackwood. Better known as Lord Dufferin, he had traveled to Iceland himself in 1856 as a young man and published a best-selling account of his journey called Letters from High Latitudes. Recalling the industriousness and resilience of the Icelanders, he agreed that they would make ideal homesteaders on the sparsely settled Manitoba Plains. Shipping companies hired Icelanders to sell the idea of moving to the New World to their countrymen, offering them payment for each one who emigrated. Sigfus Einarsson was one of the most successful of these agents. Rather than move abroad himself, he made enough money from the sale of the tickets that he was able to build a mansion in Reykjavik, where he lived out his life as a wealthy gentleman. In the summer of 1873, the first large-scale group migration to North America began, when 200 Icelanders boarded the steamship Queen in Akureyri. The hastily organized journey was arduous and took up to 70 days. Unsurprisingly, seasickness and diseases plagued the early immigrants en route, and many perished. With little ceremony, their corpses were cast into the sea. Over time, conditions gradually improved. A typical journey in the 1890s would be relatively safe and take no more than two weeks. Jón Eldon, 1851 to 1906. The wife has promised to teach me English this winter, but 
I am guessing that it will be just as with our Sylvie Hulkerson, who promised to fly me to the moon. I am not able to understand or speak a single word in English, which is really unpleasant for me. There's a real lack of sheep and seafood here. A bad failing indeed. In late May 1892, Artbjörg gave birth to twins. Ominously, the skies darkened and heavy flakes began to fall. Within two days, the fields were covered with a meter of heavy snow. Rather than grazing on fresh green grass in the open air, the livestock would have to remain in their cramped, murky barn and feed on what remained of the hay. In the following weeks, as the snow continued to enshroud the fields, it became apparent to Gusti, Artbjörg, and Jon that they were facing a crisis. Realizing they would have to cull some of the herd, they began with the scores of newborn lambs. Some time passed. When the hay supply was nearly exhausted, Gusti and his father-in-law were forced to cull more of their livestock, which had numbered 60 ewes and two horses. By the time the first grass appeared, through the melting snow in late June, all they had left were 18 malnourished sheep and a single skinny horse. Although Gusti had never seriously considered emigrating from his beloved homeland, now he was a husband and the father of three small children. In a little over a decade, he had seen his family's sheep herd decimated four times by unseasonable cold and the resulting diseases and hunger. On top of that, wet summers and early frosts had led to poor hay harvests every year for the past decade. Gusti and Artbjörg made up their minds to emigrate, selling everything they could to pay for their family's journey to the Icelandic settlement in Canada. Jón Elden 1851-1906 But let's have a look. Are things really so bad? I am here at the agricultural school learning everything I can about growing things and maybe even a few words in English. I have probably three times the wages that I would expect even in the best of health back home. In the plains surrounding Lake Winnipeg, there was plenty of timber for building and substantial tracts of land would be granted to hard-working, ambitious Icelandic settlers. The Canadian Pacific Railway Company planned its new route to give better access to the colony, while sawmills were set up to provide employment and furnish timber for building. To promote the plan, the Canadian government offered temporary housing and paid, steady employment for assiduous settlers. An additional draw was that the colony site promised an abundance of fish in the vast waters of Lake Winnipeg. Apart from the rapidly growing local industry, the expectation was that the new Icelanders would be able to sustain themselves generously from agriculture, cattle ranching, and fishing. The settlers would be allowed to create their own laws, maintain their own schools, and generally manage their own affairs, all in the Icelandic language, of course. They even made their own constitution that declared, among other articles, that their settlement would be only for Icelanders. After a two-week voyage by ship, train, and ferry, the family of five arrived in Winnipeg, Manitoba, in early September 1892. Eager to establish himself and pay off his debts, Gusti tended cattle, dug ditches, slaughtered pigs, reaped corn, cultivated fields, cut and collected firewood, and did whatever work he could find. At first, 
he earned about $1 per day, about 27 American dollars in today's value, about a quarter of the minimum wage then. By the end of the fall, the 25-year-old Gusti had managed to pay off his loans, but the family was broke once again. They stayed wherever they found shelter, government huts and cheap rentals. After seven years, Gusti, his brother-in-law Gunnar, and their growing families were able to take ownership of some forested land in Swan River Valley that the Canadian government was granting to settlers. The two families built log cabins and worked the land together, taking loans to buy cattle and growing a variety of crops. Within five years, Gusti and his family were growing high-quality wheat and barley, enough to pay off all of their debts. In the meantime, Gusti and another neighbor founded a Sunday school for the local children, which Gusti ran himself. Artbjörg and Gusti's good reputations grew among the community of Swan River Valley, as did the size of their family. They eventually had nine children. Artbjörg died in 1949 and Gusti in 1957. Jon Elden, 1851-1906 I have been cheating a little. Not on the wife, I must point out. After all, we've only been together for one year. Actually, what I mean is that I did something for myself in the form of getting some new shoes and a nice leather vest, which is something that the farmer has been producing locally, both of which are very expensive, as I'm sure you know. The new Iceland colony experienced numerous setbacks, and in just over a decade, it lost its independent status and was integrated into the province of Manitoba. But the tens of thousands of Icelanders who emigrated seeking a better life and endured the risks and hardship were often well rewarded. Much had to be learned, including ice fishing, hunting, felling trees, and building log cabins. Most Icelanders, after all, had never seen proper trees, but now they were surrounded by them. The west-faring settlers thus created a vibrant community in their newfound home of North America that had even positive impacts back home in Iceland. Had they not emigrated, it is estimated that 10 to 20% of the population of Iceland would have died of hunger. A recent census found that today, there are over 25,000 citizens of Manitoba and over 100,000 Canadians who can trace their roots to Iceland, while perhaps another 100,000 are also living in the United States. The enduring connections between the descendants of Icelanders in North America and those still in Iceland are a testament to their shared identity as survivors of the hardest of times. Well, thank you so much for the really interesting story as always, Frank. Thanks a lot. It was a story that I felt needed to be told, and it's one that's not that well understood even at this time. You know, the first thing that really kind of struck me um, in just going through some of these letters of the West Icelanders, uh, yes, there's a lot of hardship, um, but it's also really interesting how the tone kind of changes, you know, I mean, just like how we have good days and bad days. And, you know, I, I, I believe it was in some of these passages from Jon Elden, and, you know, some days there's a very pronounced pessimism, and then, you know, some other days uh, he maybe had a little bit more of an even-handed approach and 
was kind of thinking, well, you know, on the whole, maybe it is a little bit better here. Uh, and, you know, I mean, of course, there are always difficulties in the immigrant experience. And it's just kind of cool to, you know, just see that thought process kind of unfolding in these letters. Yeah, the, the, um, those quotes that uh, we've been hearing had come from uh, a large two-volume set um, I only bought the second half of it because it was cheaper, but, <laughs> but it was really interesting to uh, page through it and then uh, translate it. And what I think really comes out of it is the feel that these people are not going back. Now, this is a little strange because we find out later that of the people who emigrated to Canada, almost 25% of them did go back. So there were a lot of people that were apparently as dissatisfied as they could be or thought, screw it, I'd much rather come back. Mm. And um, my uh, ex-wife's great-grandfather was one of them. And uh, that was kind of a fun thing to realize. Is there any sense of how the West Icelanders who returned were treated back in their communities? Yeah, that. Uh, so a lot of them came back with uh, a lot more money but they also came back with things like fashion. And so in the case of my uh, ex-wife, she had an aunt, or she was called an aunt, who had lived in Canada for 25 years. And she always wore a fur coat, which was extremely rare in Iceland. And she had her hair made up in the, the way that was popular, not in Iceland at the time, but in the rest of the world. So um, she was always called fru, this mm, woman, no. like, like lady. Madam. Yeah. And uh, <laughs> apparently some of her wealth was derived from an affair that she was having with a local businessman. But um, that's a story for another time. It certainly is uh, kind of uh, maybe a little bit funny from our perspective to think of uh, the prairies of North America and Canada as being kind of exotic and worldly. <laughs> yeah. I, I, what, the impression that I got, especially from the character that we talk about most, Gusti, is that they really saw that there was a possibility to, if not become wealthy, at least become well off. And they realized the risks, but um, as we can say, see in the case of Gusti, even though he was determined to stay in the country of Iceland, after making his money, he stayed in Canada. Mm. Which, I mean, if you think about it, he probably could have sold what he had and moved to, I don't know, New York or Ontario or something like that, but he chose to stay there. So. I'm assuming that there was a lot of affection for the local place. Yeah, and to kind of just linger on this question of staying or leaving uh, these conditions, you know, I mean, certainly, I guess the kind of canonical treatment of this issue is in Loxness and independent people. Uh, yeah. And I mean, like, like certainly the way that it's represented is that the boat to America is one way. Um, so it's kind of interesting to kind of think about, uh, you know, the people that did return and like they're actually being a little bit more like movement and flowing of people than one might think. Mm. It was actually also interesting to note that by the end of the emigration period, which was World War One, mm. because it, it, when World War One started, they couldn't get ships in and out anymore. Yep. So 1914 was a, the apparent end of this immigration. But at that time, if you look at the letters of the people who were writing back and forth between North America and Iceland, many were saying, oh, I'm looking forward to coming back and spending, you know, a couple of months, but I, I need to come back again. So 
Some people were actually traveling for two weeks at a time just to get back to Iceland for maybe a summer or something like that because their roots were that important to them. Um, yeah, um, <clears throat> uh, it's been a while since I've read Independent People, but I mean, I can't help but just think of it when we're talking about this. And, you know, uh, one of the sons uh, is going to emigrate to the U.S., and there's this scene where, you know, he's kind of having a tryst with uh, one of the kind of more prominent farmer's daughters of the area. And, you know, it was kind of his first love and they're together until like the very early morning. And ultimately he kind of misses his boat uh, for the Americas. And, you know, I always kind of thought of that as like a really interesting way of framing like maybe the ways in which Iceland kind of sticks with people, like maybe how difficult it actually was to leave uh, this sense of like falling in love and kind of kind of it being really difficult to extricate yourself from that, um, you know, no matter how hard it actually was to live here. Um, yeah. I think we have to acknowledge that there was about half of the country was in utter poverty at the time. Yeah. And the other half wasn't doing tremendously better. Um, I'd like to read a poem that was published in 1888 by a uh, Lutheran pastor who's very well known because he wrote the Icelandic National Anthems lyrics. Uh, his name is Matthias Jokumsson, and he wrote this rather scandalous, uh, very upset, apparently, a uh, declaration about his country. Miserable land, home of emaciation. Oh, beggar birthing nation, miserable land, pitiful land. Every last seat has been taken. No edible morsel forsaken. Raven found land. Are you not for ravens best suited? We're bound for shores better reputed. Raven found land. And so this was composed in 1888, the national anthem, 1874. Yeah. So, you know, I mean, like, like maybe within just those two dates, there's a little arc yeah. of the declining conditions in Iceland. Well, one of them was the eruption of Mount Askja uh, in the Northeast. And one of the things we see in the uh, population uh, dem demographic changes at the time was that the majority of those who went to North America came from the northeast of Iceland, mm. um, as our character does Gusti. And um, that was probably no coincidence because Askja, which erupted in that same time period, caused tremendous destruction. Uh, hundreds of farms had to be abandoned, and um, those people were actually paid uh, to be sent abroad because by law in Iceland at the time in the 19th century, you had to feed people. You couldn't simply let them starve to death, although that would often be the case. Um, and the counties uh, did not have the money for that, so they found it a better investment to send the people with a free ticket to North America with the understanding that they would never come back. Mm. Of course, when they reached the shores, they had nothing, and many of them died in poverty in North America. But some few, like Gusti, did quite well. I'm actually kind of curious um, if you came across any information in writing this about um, how mobile were people once they arrived in North America? 
uh, because I'm kind of, you know, I would kind of think that uh, if you are getting on a boat with a lot of people from your region, maybe, you know, just the neighboring farm, same kind of community, um, that it would also kind of lead to these communities being recreated in North America. And, you know, if you have a boatload of people from Vopnafjordur, if the settlement that they ultimately found, uh, you know, has some sort of deep connection, you know, with one particular area of Iceland, I mean, not just a lot of Icelanders living together, but I mean, really just, you know, 50, 100, 200 people from Vopnafjordur or something. It, it actually makes a lot of sense. One of the sad things that we did not include in this so far was that um, in the first year when you had the mass migration of those 200 people, there were 50 children that died in the first year wow. of various illnesses, including smallpox. Um, and I think with that kind of a blow, it would be very easy to understand that people would give up and say, you know what, uh, it's not worth it. Let's just go back home. Or something, but they stayed, most of them. And um, there were numerous epidemics and all kinds of tragedies. But uh, I think that the people had enough support between each other uh, to really create a community. And it's it's um, sort of a joke that was um, told in the old days that before the Icelanders who came to Canada <clears throat> had uh, plowed their fields, they'd already set up a printing press. <laughs> they started printing newspaper and um, and also for to translate local works into yeah. Icelandic. <clears throat> and uh, there are plenty of these books that made it back to Iceland. So even in the library where we are now, there are probably some books that had been printed in Canada. Yeah, I mean, uh, there's actually some very old uh, publications in North America that still trace their roots back to this Icelandic legacy of literacy um i believe there's a kind of r regional newspaper for the icelandic community still today called lukberg heimskringla yeah um which you know basically comes out of these communities and it, it, it it's still going today and is one of i mean correct me if i'm wrong uh, or rather the people on the internet can correct me if i'm <laughs> wrong uh, but it's one of the oldest publications in north america actually and that has a lot to do with like the icelandic Roots and literacy. That that makes a lot of sense. The um, the Lugberg, whatever it's called, Heimskringla. Thanks, <laughs> Lugberg Heimskringla. I believe That's it was originally two uh, two publications. There was a publication yeah. called Lugberg, and then a publication called Heimskringla. Makes sense. So you know, like like both very good Icelandic words. Yeah, <laughs> um, I'll believe that it is now published in English. Yeah, yeah. yeah. But um, there are websites that you can go to to see. Uh, older versions of it, and that's one of the ones I used as a source. It was um, a very long interview with this guy Gusti explaining his story. Um, but one of the things I, I thought was really charming that we haven't spoken about so far was the fact that the weather was so different that mm. in the letters that Icelanders wrote back to uh, their family and friends at home in Iceland, they talked about how the uh, storms would come and and uh, lightning would appear. And this was something that they were not familiar with because lightning is extremely rare here mm. uh, in Iceland. And so uh, they also would see these strange phenomena. For example, when there would be an electrical storm, the uh, cables that would be on the telegraph wires would sparkle. Mm. And it would scare the Icelanders 
they thought it was some some devil's work or something like that because it was so unfamiliar to them. Uh, and those things are really charming. Another thing that has to be recognized is that Iceland, despite its bad weather conditions at some points and eruptions and so forth, has a relatively mild climate in the winter and, of course, a very cool uh, temperature in the summer. This was something that was very different than um, they expected when they arrived in, in Ontario and uh, the, these areas around Winnipeg because the winters there are much, much colder and the summers are much hotter. So, as we heard, there were people dying of sun, sub, sunstroke, but also people dying of frost. So, mm. pretty tough place to live just in that case. And then there were the diseases. Smallpox was a big problem even then. And uh, there were all kinds of other things that we're not even sure. And we know that um, every year there was a, a very high attrition rate, but it improved over time. So something that has been in the news a lot recently is both the status of asylum seekers and refugees in Iceland, also just kind of broader questions of Icelandic language education, uh, you know, both for, you know, pe people who just work here, immigrants, etc. Um, and, you know, it does just kind of make me think of the ways in which uh, things have been reversed through time. Uh, Obviously, I, Iceland has a certain level of affluence now, and it's kind of maybe hard to think of Icelanders as immigrants in a new society. Um, and yet, you know, a lot of these stories of the West Icelanders settling in Canada, you know, like really kind of paint this picture. And, um, you know, I was just kind of wondering um, if there, like, it, like if there's anything interesting that you came across in like how they integrated and like how, I mean, like specifically learning English maybe, for mm. instance. Well, we have a couple of phrases that came from a, um, a new Icelanders uh, phrase book in order to learn English. And there's some really pre precious ones in here. It is bad to have no book. <laughs> And I can agree with that. <laughs> yeah. And I like this next one too. I am glad to have some bread and milk. <laughs> and then, of course, it is good to have a house, but bad to have none. <laughs> I'm not sure how useful these would have been, but you can see this was uh, a, a very um, uh, short way to, to bring people up to speed so that they could communicate with their neighbors because, of course, people had to do business and, and uh, the language of Canada in that region was English. Well, and of course, also one of these anecdotes, you know, makes brief mention of, you know, children as kind of bridges into the community, ch children as the language learners, yeah. um, just these Icelanders kind of wondering at how quickly their children are actually picking up the English. And, yeah. Well, it... It's funny because I guess Icelanders at this time in general were not used to learning anything other than maybe Danish or a little yeah. German here and there. So I think English was relatively unfamiliar for most Icelanders at the time. And that's why it, it appears to present such a challenge to them. But uh, it's hard for us these days because I, I can't even think of a single Icelander who doesn't speak good English. Yeah. So, but back then it was a, it was a rare talent. Uh, this isn't totally apropos, but I mean, I guess it's just kind of also interesting to me 
uh, to think of these settlements initially as an actual colony. Can you talk a little bit more about that? I mean, it, like it wasn't just Icelandic communities of immigrants in Canada to begin with. It was an actual colony, right? Mm -hmm. uh, which would mean that, I mean, presumably they're still living with Icelandic laws, for instance? Yeah, the, the main law that I described earlier was that they had decided they wanted to be an insular community and not allow any others to move in. But this only lasted for a period of a few years. Mm -hmm. And it was also corresponding to the time when people were just beginning to really feel like they understood the place and could live there. Yeah. Uh, so in the, in the very first year that the uh, 200 Icelanders arrived, they built um, a couple of buildings. One was supposed to be like a community center. And uh, that was the then when they realized how cold the winter was, everybody moved into the community center because they only had one oven. Mm. So they could keep the people warm then. But despite that, all of those children died. And um, that was because they had people so tightly packed together. So it took a few years for them to establish enough log cabins and the like that people could actually survive the winters in, in something less than misery. But um, that that wasn't happening in the first couple of years. Oh. And uh, after uh, things got established, I think that Canada had decided that there was no good reason to have a foreign colony in their own country. So Canada was sort of congealing at this time, and it also made it more and more uh, important to be able to speak English. So business sort of took over. And as we can see with uh, our character Gusti, he moved out of the Icelandic community. Yeah, yeah. And one of the reasons that people were moving away from it was because they saw better opportunities nearby or maybe over in Montana or, or just over the American border. Um, and we can see from the final statistics that uh, there's almost the same number of people living in the United States of Icelandic heritage as there are in Canada. Oh. Uh, but the concentration that they had there was for a relatively limited period. So uh, with this kind of historical piece, there's always, um, you know, just a lot of details and things that maybe kind of don't make it into the final story. Um, was there anything just really interesting that you came across, but, you know, didn't really quite make it into the piece? Or Yeah, I, I did mention a bit about the equivalency of value. So when they say dollar in Canada at this time, it was approximately the same as an American dollar. And it was worth about 30 American dollars in today's money. And we're seeing, for example, um, people are earning $1 a day. So you can put that in today's money as $30. But with that $30, you also have to pay the ticket that you use to get over here. Yep. So you have debts on that. You have to pay somehow for you know, your family's food and like some sort of housing. So this was not a lot of money. Um, it would probably be, I would think that the, um, the, the absolute minimum wage would be something like three times that today yeah. uh, in Canada. But the other thing I thought was fascinating was to learn how difficult it was to get to North America from Iceland. The way I pictured it initially before I knew anything was a sailing ship would come into the harbor, people would row out, get in, they'd go over and four days later they'd arrive in North America. But what we have is that it did not go that way at all. First of all, they would take a, the ship 
from wherever it would land in Iceland, in the case of the story that I just told, Ockeriri, and it would go to Scotland, Glasgow or Leith near Edinburgh. And that would take six to 12 days, just just getting you know 1,000 kilometers, 600 miles across the ocean. To, mm. Then they would have to wait there, take a train ride, uh, get into Glasgow, and it would take them in a steamship, that was the, the much more modern thing, 15 days just to reach the coast of Canada. Mm. And I mean, people are talking about long flights. <laughs> and then once they get to Canada, getting to Winnipeg by train was no easy thing. It would take a minimum of two days. So 48 hours of travel by train. Yep. And uh, the total travel time was never less than 27 days and usually not more than 35. But imagine a full four week period yep. just to get from one area to the next, which we do now in, you know, an afternoon. Yep. Yeah. Um, I mean, certainly just gives a lot of perspective on, you know, I mean, also just how close this history still is. I mean, there are still people alive that were born in turf houses. And I mean, obviously, uh, Iceland has become much more affluent uh, in recent history. But I mean, there are still very much people alive today with a foot still in this world somehow. Yeah, I think I think we're we're unfortunately seeing the last of them now. I think those people are dying out. But it is um, it is pretty interesting to realize that in and around Reykjavik there were a lot of these farms, including on Arnarholt, which is where we have a mm. a beautiful statue um, of um, what's his name again. <laughs> is that just? Ingolf Arnason. That's it. Because it's Arnold. <laughs> <laughs> okay, I got that one right. Yeah, uh, that used to be the site of a, of a little farm until like the 1950s. And it was a cute farm and it was right up on, a, I mean, if you think that real estate today would be worth millions and millions, but now it's a, it's a nice little park with a, with a beautiful Ingolf Arnason statue on it. All right. Well, thank you as always for the story, Frank. It was really great. Thank you. Deep North is the official podcast of Iceland Review, the oldest continuously running English language publication on Iceland, covering community, nature, and culture. If you enjoyed listening, please consider subscribing to Iceland Review at our website.